Good morning. So thank you for coming to see Dr. Lau. Bonnie Lau has been the newest addition to our pediatric hematology and oncology section. She's been fantastic. I'll just put it out there that way. So just to give you a little bit of background about Bonnie, she in 1998 graduated from Harvard Radcliffe, went and spent two years at Teach for America in New York, so not an easy job. Then spent three years as a research health specialist at a VA medical center in West Roxbury, Massachusetts. Uh, she then went to my own alma mater, Brown University, and finished her MD-PhD there. Um, she had already started doing cancer research looking at mesothelioma while she was there. Did her residency at Tufts, uh, and then in 2014, went to Johns Hopkins, where, where she did her Hemonc Fellowship, and stayed there as an assistant professor after winning a junior faculty recruitment award. I'm especially proud of Dartmouth because she actually had funding at Johns Hopkins through 2021, and we were able to lure her away and recruit her and attract her here. Uh, she joined our team in October 2019 and has been an excellent addition here. Her work here is primarily in her research, um, so, but she does have a monthly clinic that she does um, in, our, in our outpatient clinic, and she shares night and weekend calls for which we are eternally grateful. <laughs> but keep your eyes open for her work. She's already got a long list of publications racking up, and her two most recent publications have been in Oncogene about leukemic transformation of myelodysplastic syndrome, and this past no November she had an article in Journal of Pediatrics about a, a unique case of severe aplastic anemia with a previously unreported gene mutation. So I'm anticipating she will continue to do this fantastic work. In the short time that she's here, she's done some great stuff for us already. She's only been here since October. She's ushering our participation into the North American Pediatric Aplastic Anemia Consortium. And she's already started some uh, work with Dana Farber about a genomics project. And then lastly, and what I'm most excited about is that we recently learned that she's a finalist for a major grant, Science is the Cure, Kids Beating Cancer. And next month, she'll be going to Florida to actually give a 15-minute pitch to try to win this grant. So I am very hopeful that she can do this. Uh, it's her, grant, her research is about mutations in Fanconi's anemia that may lead to other types of cancers and whether these mutations can be immunotherapy targets. And with that, that's the perfect segue. She's going to share with us some information about immunotherapy and teach us what we're supposed to know about it. So please welcome um, Bonnie Lau to our this talk. Thank you. Thank you, Julie, for the warm welcome. So I'm excited to talk to you in the next hour about immunotherapy, which I entitled The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. I have no conflicts of interest or disclosures to report. And The Good, the Bad, and Ugly was actually a spaghetti Western film, for those of you who are a little younger. Uh, it's from the 1960s, and uh, for some reason, my father was a huge Clint Eastwood fan, and so this is in dedication to my dad. Um, so the outline for today's talk is, I'm going to start with what is immunotherapy, and then go into the good of it, what immunotherapy has accomplished for us, the bad. There's still adverse effects of immunotherapy that we're working on. And then there's some really ugly things too. There's some true risk to immunotherapy, but I can't end with the ugly, right? So I'm gonna to talk to you about what we can do about the bad and the ugly. So this is a famous figure from um, the journal Cell in 2000 by Hanahan and Weinberg, where they talk about the hallmarks of cancer. So I'm not going to go into the gritty details of it, but as you can see, these are aspects of tumors that allow them to grow and grow uncontrollably. And there were six different hallmarks of cancer back in 2000. 
Fast forward to 2020 and look at this. Now we have 10 different ways that the tumors are able to be able to grow uncontrollably. And I'm going to focus in this hour on this one, how tumors avoid immune destruction. So the immune system is the first defense against cancer. Uh, on the left-hand side, you see a picture of a cell that has a self-marker on it. And so a T-cell, your CDA-positive uh, effector T-cell, the happy one there, um, was going to see the self-marker and say, okay, I'm going to leave it alone, okay, and be happy. On the right-hand side, though, could be something foreign that gets introduced to the body. It could be a bacteria. It could be a tumor cell that has basically become, was a self-cell, but then became non-self and express these antigens that are non-self proteins. And that should turn on your T-cell to then be effective at killing it, recognizing it as foreign and killing it. However, tumors are really tricky. So this is how tumor cells can trick the immune system. So pretend that's a tumor cell. What it can do is actually downregulate the expression of these foreign proteins or antigens, and therefore switches the effector T cell back to that happy T cell that thinks that it's normal. So it's not going to kill it. Another way a tumor cell can trick the immune system is become friends with regulatory T cells. Uh, this is a FOXP3 positive t regulatory T cell that basically is like a check on the immune system, says, hold on, this guy may actually be not foreign, and so don't kill it. And so that's another way that it changes a effector T cell from being active to being just happy. So the goal of immunotherapy is to help the immune system get back into shape. So here in figure one is your T cell that seems, it looks a little confused, right? It's like, is this self, is this non-self, not sure, but I do have a job to do. So immunotherapy will make it a Mr. T cell that pities the fool who expresses non-self antigen. <laughs> and uh, there's many advantages to immunotherapy, which I will go into. Uh, but the basic idea is that it uses the patient's own immune system and it is very selective compared to systemic chemotherapy. So we hope for fewer side effects. So just by a show of hands, how long do you think immunotherapy has been around for cancer? So there are four options. Show of hands, who thinks less than 10 years? 10 to 50 years? 50 to 90 years? 90 to 130 years? No takers? It was actually 130 years ago. Um, so back in 1891, there was Dr. William B. Coley, who's the grandfather of immunotherapy. He was a, what we would call a surgical oncologist these days. And he realized that after he did surgeries, the patients who ended up getting sepsis were the patients that did better than the patients who did not get sepsis. And when he thought more about it, he's like, well, then I should give my patients little doses of serratia or streptiogenes, give them a little sepsis, and then they'll do better. And that was called Coley's toxin. And it actually did work a little bit. Uh, it also killed some of his patients. Um, but that is the initial um, report of immunotherapy. So there are five different types of cancer immunotherapy treatments that we have right now. So let's go over those. There's monoclonal antibodies. These are uh, the drugs with the long names and the MAB at the end. 
And so this helps the immune system because it can recognize cancer cells that it wasn't able to previously. Again, remember, the tumors can downregulate antigen expression and then doesn't have the ability to be seen by the immune system. You can go ahead and just give monoclonal antibodies that attack those few antigens that are on the tumors and allow the immune system to be more robust. And there's over 75 drugs approved to date, although this is a little old from um, 2017. So it's a few years old, and so there's more than 75 now. The second type is your immune checkpoint inhibitors. And those um, kind of release the immune system breaks in the system. So not only are we always having an immune system that's revved up, right? Otherwise, we get things like autoimmunity. The immune system is a regulated system that also has its off switches and regulatory aspects. So this basically is a way to go in and take off the brakes a little bit with a patient with cancer so that you can then attack the tumor. And there's been at least six drugs approved so far. The third type is cancer vaccines. And there are two types, preventative, we can think of like HPV vaccine as a preventative cancer vaccine, and then the treatment kind, which we don't have anything FDA approved for pediatrics, but uh, there are FDA approved cancer vaccines for prostate cancer and melanoma. And this is an interesting thought. We think about cancer vaccines as very, very specific to the patient's tumor. You can basically send a patient's tumor and get genetic sequencing done and allow that to be a use of artificial intelligence and long, like large data databases to think about personalized medicine for each patient. But that could be another talk in itself, but it is interesting to think about. The fourth type of uh, immunotherapy right now is called adoptive cell transfer. Most of us know CAR T cells because that's been in the media a lot lately. And it's a pretty new concept. And right now there's a couple of drugs that are approved and it uses gene editing. And I'll go into the details of how that gene editing is done. And then the fifth is the cytokines. So these are man-made versions, your recombinant proteins that boost the immune system. It's kind of complicated because there's so many different cytokines in our bodies and they do different roles and their regulation and modifications are um, really interesting, uh, but they are effective. And so we'll go into some of those uh, examples as well. So let's go ahead into the good of immunotherapy. So um, I have to thank Dr. Gaddy Mays and my colleague at the NIH for these. Uh, most of immunotherapy has been successful, especially with PD-1 program DEF-1 inhibitor immunotherapy uh, in the adult population for solid tumors. So on the left-hand side are CT scans from a melanoma patient with metastatic melanoma to the lungs. Circled in red are your two lesions. So at before treatment, you see the two different lesions. After three months on PD-1 inhibition, you can see that there's some pseudoprogression on the more anterior let me see if I can, the arrow showing on my screen, but not your screen. Okay. Um, so basically, let's see if this works. Okay. So here you can see um, this lesion looks a little bigger, right? While this lesion is getting smaller. This is very common in uh, immunotherapy. You actually get some inflammation, believe it or not, because you're revving up the immune system. And so you get some pseudoprogression, and we always warn patients, like, don't be afraid if this looks like it's gotten a little bit bigger when we check a few months after. But then at 10 months, you can see that this patient basically had a complete response, and we don't have any more lesions in the lungs. 
So that's pretty dramatic for melanoma, which used to be a death sentence, and now we concur them. And then on the right-hand side is actually looking at a PD-L1 inhibitor on a Merkel cell carcinoma, which we don't see in kids. But it's an interesting picture because you can see how dramatic the effect is. After only 5.3 months on being this in, on this inhibitor, you can barely see the tumor anymore. So there's been a lot of success in the solid tumor world in adults. And in some adult tumors, the response is not only dramatic, like I showed in the last slide, but very rapid and long-lasting. So this is a spider plot where on the y-axis you have the diameter of the tumor and how that changes over time on the x-axis. So in red are your patients that still have progressive disease despite being on this therapy. So that means they are the non-responders, and that's something that is interesting in the field. You definitely get your cohort of patients that are non-responders and your patients that are responders, and trying to figure out the biomarkers of who's going to respond is a really hot topic right now. So your, non your progressive disease patients are in red. You have patients that are sort of like non-responders because they just have stable disease. But who knows, maybe they are responding slightly, but not as well as we would like. And then in green are your partial responders, and in black are your complete responders. And as you can see in your green and black, the first like 40 days of therapy, it's pretty dramatic how uh, quickly the tumor shrinks. And so it's a very rapid response. And then it's, it's sustained, as you can see, the tail goes all the way to like 270 days. So this is very promising. So I just showed you a lot of adult data because most of it is adult data, but what about in pediatric oncology? The type of tumors that we treat in pediatrics is quite different from adults, and I don't need to tell you all that children are not, you know, small adults. So you have some solid tumors, some leukemias, lymphomas, and CNS tumors that we all treat, and the type of leukemia might be the same, like you hear adults get B-cell leukemia and kids get B-cell leukemia, but they're still very different diseases. They express different antigens, so the type of immunotherapy would have to be tailored more towards pediatrics than what is used in adults for the most part. So immunotherapy for pediatric tumors, we've had some success. Uh, the residents out there have taken care of our neuroblastoma patients, for example. We just had one admitted to the uh, ICU last week. And, uh, you know, they present with these different things like masses, the raccoon eyes that um, people get on their board exams. And the therapy that we use for neuroblastoma, high risk, in, is uh, this combination of monoclonal antibodies and cytokines. And this is a COG or a children's oncology group study. Uh, the nomenclature of studies in COG, A and B, L would kind of tell you what the disease is, so this is neuroblastoma. The 00 is actually the year that the clinical trial started. And then the 32 would be the number study that it is. So it was like the 32nd study of that year. So what this regimen is, is donatuximab or CH14.18 that binds GD2, which is the antigen on neuroblastoma. And then in addition, you rev up the immune system with cytokines, GMCSF and IL2. Although some of you probably noticed that we don't do GMCSF anymore because it hasn't shown to really increase um, using the double cytokines and we just give IL-2. And this is the data from that trial. 
we can see that compared to standard therapy on this overall survival curve, those that got immunotherapy significantly had better overall survival. So a success story in pediatrics. <laughs> However, getting away from the solid tumors, most of our success has been in our leukemias. So this is in terms of B-cell acute lymphoblastic leukemia, and I'll talk to you about why mostly B-cell versus T-cell um, leukemias are the targets right now. But in the top right-hand corner is like a, a smear, and you can see these leukemia blasts, they're characterized by having a very high nuclear to cytoplasmic ratio. You can see the chromatin in the nucleus is very open. You can see the regularity of the nuclear uh, border, there's clefting. So that's a blast. We, hematopathologists and oncologists look at it and say, oh, that's ugly. So the first type of immunotherapy that we started with was an antibody drug conjugate. So we know that antibodies can work if we can figure out something that's expressed by these leukemia cells. And one of those epitopes is CD22. So there is an antibody that can bind to the CD22 on the leukemia cells, and it's attached to a drug, which is basically an antibiotic. So you give this to the patients, and it binds to CD22 on a tumor cell. It gets internalized. It gets cleaved off, so the drug then can enter the nucleus bind DNA, cause DNA damage, and you're gonna end up killing the tumor cell. So that's how that works. Uh, moving on to another type of immunotherapy for leukemia is something called BITE, or a bispecific T-cell engager. And it is what it sounds like. Bispecific because it actually combines two different antibodies, putting them together. The CD3 antibody will recognize the CD3 of T cells, right? Just normal CD3 on T cells. And then your CD19 recognizes uh, the tumor cell. And the, because they're bringing the two things together in closer proximity, it activates that T cell to go ahead and start killing that tumor cell. So that's how this works. And this drug is called blinitumumab. We actually have a patient getting that right now. Um, and this is what the, it is. So I got to go to uh, Orlando last month for the American Society of Hematology meeting. And like Julie said, I have to go again next month, so poor me. Um, <laughs> but it was the, it's a, like a really big annual meeting with tens of thousands of people and hematologists. And they talk about these late breaking abstracts. Um, most of the time, it's all adult data that gets to present for late breaking abstracts. But this year we actually had pediatric data. So we were very excited about this. This is from the COG phase three study AALL1331. And this is the um, use of blinitumumab in reinduction after relapse of B-cell ALL. And what they found was that blinitumumab in blue on the plots here is superior to standard four drug reinduction in standard chemotherapy. And not only that, there were fewer and less severe toxicities. Again, immunotherapy is more selective and improved disease-free survival, which is on the left and overall survival on the right. So late breaking news. Okay, moving on to the gene editing CAR T cells. This is a schematic of how CAR T cells are made and then used in patients. 
So you start with removing blood from the patient to get the T cells. So they're hooked up to a machine for hours just to get enough of their T cells. And then the T cells go into a lab where they do gene editing. They can insert a gene using a lentivirus uh, with a CAR. So what does CAR stand for? It's chimeric antigen receptor. It's a chimera because there's the red part here, which recognizes something on the tumor that you're trying to attack. So the most common one we think of is CD19 on your B-cell leukemia. And then there's the blue part that basically is a way to activate the T-cell. So you got your CAR T-cells and you got to grow millions of them in the lab. And when you have enough, you could basically infuse it back into the patient IV. And then it, you let the CAR T-cells do its work and attack the tumor. So it's really fascinating and kind of ingenious to do it this way. However, it takes 21 days for this whole process, at least. And if you could imagine, you have a very sick leukemia patient where the leukemic blast is just blasting off, you may not have enough time. So that is one consideration. I was lucky enough to be at the NIH when they were doing the phase one, phase two, phase three trials on CAR T cells before it was FDA approved. And this is the group. Um, this is the Lancet paper that they published on the phase one study. Uh, the senior author is Dr. Crystal Makel, who uh, I will show you a little video of because she's just one of those um, physician scientists that really is great. You know, she cares a lot about the patients. She is a scientist. She loves learning, you can tell, because she feels like she can learn from anybody, no matter what your rank is. Um, and she was an excellent teacher. So I'm gonna give you a little video of her. But uh, in this phase one study, they had 21 patients recruited. And these are pediatric patients. All of them re with relapse or refractory ALL. Uh, they're at the NIH because they've failed standard care of therapy. They have no other options for therapy, so they're going to try this, right? One patient even was in her eighth relapse. Yeah. Uh, amazingly, we had 70% of the patients have a complete response. So where they didn't have response to anything else, we got into remission so they can go into transplant and hopefully have cure of their disease. So then 2017, we got the latest and greatest news that the first CAR T-cell therapy for pediatric leukemia gained FDA approval. So um, we are doing that at certain centers, giving CAR T-cell therapy for our pediatric patients. Right now here at Dartmouth, we have our first CAR T-cell uh, patients on the adult side, and I do hope that eventually we can do that on the pediatric side. And Right now, we do focus a lot on the B-cell ALL, because the B-cells ALLs, they too tend to uh, express a lot of different antigens, as you can see, that we can target. We're already trying to target CD19, CD22, and it looks like there's more that we could try to target. But T-cells, they're a little more stingy. They only express a couple of different antigens that make them T-cell leukemia, so it's been a little bit harder to try to get a CAR T-cell against T-cells. Same for your um, acute myeloid leukemias. AMLs have poorer prognosis than your ALLs, and they also are stingy. They don't really express a lot of proteins that we can go after, although now we do have some pediatric trials trying to do CD123 CAR T cells against AML. So this is Dr. Crystal Makel, who um, I got to work with at the NIH. She since uh, moved to Stanford, but I'm gonna show you part of this video as she talks about CAR T cell therapy and the future of it. Oh no.
it was working earlier. So I hope. Hmm. <laughs> Should um, is when he was here, it started working. How do we get like a tech person? Here, I can do it. I'll get it. Okay. I can't help it. Yeah. So if you press that button, it didn't work. Right. Let me go see if I can. Sorry about that. I did a trial run and it worked. Well, any questions thus far? How much do these things cost? Thank you. So, yeah, I am going to go into that. I can tell you about the blue team that. Yeah. All the It's an added benefit. Yeah. All the new recruits, candidates for medicine are going to hear this video in there too. Uh, I see. Is that okay? <laughs> Not to them it isn't. So try it. No, it didn't work. Didn't? You have it attached someplace? Because it worked. You know what? Oh, yeah. It's been working. Um... We worked it this morning, didn't we? Yeah, it worked this morning. Um, I'm... I'm, have you got it some buried somewhere? In the... No, like it works on my laptop. So, yeah. All right. So okay. We just move on. Sorry about that. They're coming tomorrow for some issues. Yeah.
kind of abandoned me. Is he coming back? Is he coming back? So podium. Yep. And a center projector. Projector. That should be a podium laptop. Press the source button at the top of the page. Press send to project it below. Podium laptop. this one. No? Gosh, we're like not doing this, are we? Okay. All right, let me go get them back again. Okay. I try to see if the USB was work. It's still not projecting. I didn't try that yet. No. Let's get that one. Yeah. <laughs> Press all the buttons. It says recording. Sharing PC. Sorry, that was bad. That's funny. Eleni's calling the ring. All right. Oh, yeah, no problem. Where's our chief resident? Oh, wait. Yeah, and then seats. There we go. Okay. I think we're we totally lost the screen now. I think with that at least the screen's showing up now. Yeah. Okay. Oh that's a shame. All right. I'm not sure what happened to your video that played earlier. Yes it did, yeah. Okay. Thank you. Thanks. Good. Yeah, I just won't do the video. Okay, sorry. No video. You can send us the link. That's right. Yes, yes. Okay, so moving on then. Um, so 
what she basically was saying in the video was that the next steps in CAR T-cell therapy would be to start targeting the solid tumors and brain tumors. So let's talk a little bit what's really worked for solid tumors in the adult world would be your checkpoint inhibitors, removing the breaks of the immune system. And here I'm going to actually use a wrestling analogy. Uh, so on the left-hand side is an example of a T-cell that recognized the tumor cell on top, right? It's a T-cell receptor recognizing an antigen, and it's kind of holding it there, and it was going to, like, punch it and, like, get rid of it. But the tumor cell, though, is expressing something called PD-L1, and it's binding the receptor on the T-cell called PD-1, which is that break in the immune system. And now they're in this, like, clinching position, right, where it looks like the two wrestlers are kind of hugging, but they're not hugging. They're, like, doing some strategy to make sure that they don't get hit. And that's basically what the tumor cell is doing. However, if you give them a checkpoint inhibitor, a PD-1 inhibitor, or a PD-L1 inhibitor, you're going to unleash that break and allow for that T cell to go ahead and kill that tumor cell. So that's how that works. When you look for the use of checkpoint immunotherapy in pediatrics right now, it's all in early phase clinical trials. So I don't know if you know of this website, clinicaltrials.gov, but I often refer this website to patients and friends and family who say, I have um, an uncle who has this disease, we want to look for clinical trials. They can go ahead and go to clinicaltrials.gov, it's a public website, put in the name of the disease, and the, all the clinical trials for that disease comes up. So I did a search for pediatric cancer and checkpoint immunotherapy, and only one, two, three, four, five trials showed up. So it's still pretty early in using checkpoint immunotherapy for our pediatric patients, and most of these are for solid tumors. I also tend to look at the COD site, and right now they have two active trials in trying checkpoint immunotherapy for solid tumors in children. So it's the beginning of it, but it's exciting. And it's actually, uh, like Dr. Kim was saying, in my lab right now, I'm looking at a potential use of checkpoint immunotherapy for a subset of pediatric patients. Okay, so we do have really good news about, about immunotherapy, but unfortunately there is some bad news as well. When we uh, admit our neuroblastoma patients for immunotherapy, where do they end up getting admitted to? The PICU, yeah, and there's a reason for that, because immunotherapy often lands a patient into the PICU uh, where they get intubated or have other complications. And that's because of cytokine release syndrome. Imagine if you had a serious disease and that gave you all these cytokines released, you're basically undergoing sepsis. So you're doing that with immunotherapy. So this is an abstract from uh, ASH in 2012, where th these are adult patients, but they saw that all responding patients to CAR T-cell developed CRS, or cytokine release syndrome, at the time of T-cell expansion in the body. They presented with high fevers, nausea, hypotension, hypoxia. It looks like sepsis. And it was associated with increased IL-6, interferon gamma, IL-2 receptor, a little increase in TNF-alpha and IL-2, looks like sepsis. And it was immediately reversed by steroids or these anti-TNF1 or anti-IL-6 receptor antibodies. Um, so at least we could manage it. But it does look scary. When we were first doing these patients in the, in the clinical trials, it was quite scary to take care of them because they were spiking high fevers all day. They needed IV fluid boluses all the time and then get on pressors. So um, it is not 
that easy to take care of. And then there's a whole slew of problems from head to toe. Uh, because of the cytokine release, you can get encephalitis. That was one of the indications for giving them one of those antibodies to stop the cytokine release. Eye problems, hormone gland problems. So if you could imagine, it could attack like a thyroid and you could end up getting a child um, having hypothyroidism. Pneumonitis, that would be a reason why they would get intubated. And that would be a reason um, we would also give them steroids. Hepatitis, colitis, kidney problems, skin problems, uh, joint and muscle problems, nerve problems. So there are potential adverse effects of immunotherapy. And it was interesting because it seemed like the patients that got the cytokine release syndrome and got really sick were the ones who got better. And uh, it's kind of like what Coley saw, right, 130 years ago. And so this is a plot from uh, looking at patients with metastatic melanoma, and it showed the relationship between these immune-related adverse events and a response rate. So if you, if the, for the patients that had no cytokine release or adverse events, the PR and CR, the uh, partial response and the complete responders, um, basically you had like 1%. Uh, one or two percent of the patients basically have no response if they didn't get any adverse effects. But then for those that had like grade one or two or three or four adverse events, you see their response go up significantly. It, it is significant, uh, p-value of 0.0004. And not only was there a response, but you can see that there is duration of the response, that tail, that it just continues to work. And so up to like 53 months, they were still in that response rate. So maybe immunotherapy is shifting the way we think about treatment-related toxicity, that we want the toxicity because it works, but we just need to be able to manage it. And then one final bad aspect of immunotherapy is that right now our products are not the best. Uh, the CAR T cells are not really persisting. So persistence is the key to success in many aspects of life, but also with CAR T cells. Um, memory CAR T cells stick around to kill any remaining clones or subclones of CD19 positive leukemia cells to prevent relapse. Why do we keep our kids with leukemia on therapy for two to three years? It's because they have to finish maintenance therapy in order to prevent relapse. So I'm gonna show you these um, flow cytometry plots. Uh, so this, this is all CD3 positive T cells, right? These are all on the right-hand quadrants. And in, out of the total of T cells, what's in the upper right-hand quadrant are your CAR T cells. And so at day 14 after a CAR T cell infusion, you get 38% of your T cells are CAR T cells. So that's a pretty good percentage. And then as month one goes by, that decreases to 8%, month three, 2%, month six, 0.5%, month nine, 0.3%. So they're just not persisting. So we're a little bit afraid to say, we just need to give you CAR T cells and nothing else um, for therapy, unless they were able to persist and try to prevent that relapse. Okay, moving on to some ugly. So this is um, the part of the talk that I feel like is a little bit all over the place because um, the ugly aspects, there's many different aspects and they're not congruent at all, okay? But I'll try to talk you through it. Uh, I'm gonna start with a patient case, uh, someone that I did help take care of at the NIH who was a 19-year-old female with refractory CD19 positive B cell. 
She did receive CD19 CAR T-cell therapy and went into a complete remission. So we tried to get her to a bone marrow transplant. But a couple months later, as we were waiting for her transplant, her blood counts were going down. She became more anemic, thrombocytopenic, neutropenic, and peripheral blood and bone marrow aspirate was sent for full cytometry to see if she was indeed relapsing. But the hematopathologist and said with the full cytometry, they did not see any leukemic clone. However, she continued to show signs of relapse. I'm like, this must be a relapse. So on further investigation, it turned out that the BALL did relapse, but because she got the CD19 CAR T-cell therapy, CD19 was no longer an epitope of her leukemic blast, which they were looking for. And so that delayed proper diagnosis. The patient was then scheduled to receive CD22 CAR, but then she ended up passing away uh, from relapsed refractory B-cell ALL. So I do want to um, take a moment to just remember her. So moving on then to another ugly aspect is exactly what the question was about. What's the most common side effect of this drug? Bankruptcy. And this is, these are the numbers. Um, cancer vaccines, 100,000 per patient for the total doses. The high-risk neuroblastoma immunotherapy, about $100,000 per patient, just again, just for the drug. CAR T-cell therapy, up to $400,000 per patient. Checkpoint inhibitor, inhibitors, $300,000 per patient. And then, like Dr. Kim said, you add on the hospitalizations, the standard of care, and it is over a million dollars per patient. So is this something sustainable? We'll talk about that later. Uh, a third part of the ugly is that some patients do indeed die from immunotherapy. Uh, this is a plot of adult patients that were on checkpoint immunotherapy. The PD-1 is in orange, and this is um, time of symptom onset of fatal toxic effects of immunotherapy, but essentially it's almost like an overall survival curve, okay? So your orange is your anti-PD-1 users, and then your IPI would be in gray. That's another target for checkpoint immunotherapy against CTLA-4. And then if you use them in combination, that blue line shows that how quickly those fatal toxicities can occur. And so um, it is about a 2% rate of death using immunotherapy. Okay, moving on to the next ugly would be um, a special patient population that, you know, we all do run into every once in a while, but I think it's a patient population that we should consider when we think about cancer. Uh, solid organ transplant patients, or SOTP patients, um, they are at increased risk, like three times the risk of developing cancer throughout their lives because they're on all those immunosuppressive therapies. And then when they do get cancer, you try to give them therapy. Sometimes it is immunotherapy. And for these patients uh, in this study, they've got checkpoint inhibitors. And as you can see the data on the bottom, they found in their cohort of 39 patients, 41% ended up rejecting their allograft, 81% lost their graft, and 46% died. So it's a patient population that has a higher risk of cancer, and then if they do get the cancer, what can we do for them appropriately? Okay, so I can't leave with the, just the ugly, right? So uh, just to quote Martin Luther King Jr., a genuine leader is not a searcher for consensus, but a molder of consensus. And so let's talk about what we can do about the bad and the ugly. 
we talked about cytokine release syndrome and the potential fatalities from it. So definitely we want to keep the patients safe first and foremost. And then we don't want to give everybody immunotherapy if the risk is going to outweigh the benefit. Maybe they're not going to be responders. So we want to be able to predict the risk and the severity of the CRS and also predict the responders to immunotherapy. And finally, we're working on creating these kind of products that would have an off switch. So if a patient is dying in front of you because of the immunotherapy, we can maybe give them another drug that turns off that immunotherapy product in the body. So that's a hope. And then on the right-hand side is an algorithm that you can follow clinically in terms of being able to grade your CRS and then what are the interventions that you need to do while you're taking care of them in the ICU. And these sort of algorithms have helped basically recognize early the CRS that's coming on and then what you can do to mitigate it. And then I was going to show you a video. I doubt it's going <laughs> to work. Oh, still doesn't work. Um, so this is Dr. Stanley Riddell from um, Fred Hutch in Seattle, Washington. He is one of the CAR T-cell researchers, and I wanted him to talk to you about how uh, CAR T-cells that are not persisting, what they're doing to help the product be better. And he talks about how it starts with the patient, right? You want to pick the patients that are going to be responders. And then because most of these patients have had a lot of different chemotherapies, uh, you want them to help them like more robustly get their T cells up and running because a lot of them have already gotten a lot of their T cells killed from pre prior chemotherapies. Uh, so he talked about that. And then he talked about how we're engineering them. We could make it better where they're engineered to um, activate the T cell more efficiently. Uh, and then also on how to like deliver the CAR T cells uh, in a way that will make it more uh, productive. So he was much more eloquent about it, but that's basically the gist. And then back to my patient that um, got the delayed diagnosis. Um, for I, I don't know if there are any hematopathologists out there, but I thought that this was um, pretty good. So a hematopathologist, this is what his mom thinks he does, right? Play with blood, what society thinks he does, what internists think they do, clinical correlation required, um, what surgeons think I do, no factor 7A for you, what I think I do, but what I really do for hematopathologists is like scratch your head sometimes because they're, they run through hundreds of different cases every day and they know that their decision is going to really affect patient care. And so it's a really hard job and they're some of the smartest people I know. So. On our end, I think it's really important that when you're ordering a lab test, be mindful of providing the pertinent information so that they can get to the correct diagnosis for a patient. The more information, the better. Yes, for the most part, they actually try to do their own digging into the patient chart and get as much information as they can, but we know the patient the best when we're ordering those labs. So please do try to put that in there in the order for them. And then back to the cost issue. The cost does seem pretty prohibitive, over a million dollars per patient. So I did look into like a Google search and um, how do we decide what immunotherapy drugs are worth um, using in our patients? And this came up um, looking at Mylotarg, which is a CD33 antibody um, against uh, acute myeloleukemias. And this came from the National Center for Pharmacoeconomics 
By the way they spelled center, I knew that it was not American. And so what it is, is a team of clinicians, pharmacists, pharmacologists, and statisticians who can evaluate the benefit and costs of medical technologies and provide advice to the health systems executive. So this is from Ireland. We don't have anything like that here at the United States, but that doesn't mean we don't have some things in place. We actually have a number of pharmacoeconomic experts, but they're just a little bit more scattered. Like there's departments in academic centers, hospitals, policymakers, pharmaceuticals. It's just not one central location that makes a decision for a country. Uh, and so here in the US, we are trying strategies to decrease the cost of immunotherapy. So the first bullet point is we're doing clinical trials to determine the minimum effective dose. So maybe we don't have to give a million CAR T cells. Maybe we can give a smaller dose. Uh, and also figure out a schedule of immunotherapy products that are less frequent and still as effective and still have the same outcomes. So that's in, in ongoing. The second strategy right now is also to alternatives to autologous T cells. Again, with the T cells, it takes 21 days and it's ex expensive um, as you're getting these T cells from the patients, growing in the lab, and then putting it back in the patient. So they're working on these off-the-shelf CAR T cells where there's basically bags of T cells that have been engineered already. And then when a patient needs it, you can grab it, match it as well as possible to that patient's MHC profile. So it's almost like transfusion medicine, how they match the best blood for that patient. It would be the same idea with CAR T cells. The third strategy would be vial sharing that can be safely done. Uh, so that has been shown in a couple centers where they can give a dose of like your nivolumab, your checkpoint inhibitor, um, and for one patient, and then there's still some left, and then you can go ahead and multi, consider a multivial dose and get another dose for another patient. And that can be done safely. Of course, we wanna make sure there are systems in place that it is done safely. Because as we know, like for our hemophilia patients, when we order factor, it's in a vial this big, and yet it costs like tens of thousands of dollars for that vial. And we have a small patient, we give them a little bit of factor that takes maybe up half the vial, and then we throw the rest away. So there are ways to decrease costs as long as we have systems in place. Uh, the fourth is the tincture of time. Because of the value and effectiveness of immunotherapy, we, for the most part, think it is worth it. And so the next slide is another video that I won't be able to play for you. Um, so Dr. Rafael Fonseca is from the Mayo Clinic in Minnesota, and he's really interested as an oncologist on the pharmacoeconomics. And he's, his major point is that that's just the history of medicine. When something is new, it's gonna cost a lot. You give it time, it does decrease over time. And because it's so effective, the benefit again outweighs that risk and there are many ways of trying to mitigate that cost. And then your SOTP patients in the rejection of their grafts and but immunotherapies could work for their cancers. I try to look up data on pediatric solid organ transplant recipients and as of like 2013, 
there were over 42,000 kids with solid organ transplants, and they're going to be on immunosuppressive therapies. They're probably at higher risk for cancer, three times the risk. And then at the same time, there were over 1,800 kids on the bottom here that were on the waiting list still for a transplant. So this might be a population that we need to think about um, more clearly on how to use them for immunotherapy. So we want to be able to predict the responders to immunotherapy, which one of these patients would we use immunotherapy on, and can... Luckily, it seems like in the adult data, you can increase their immunosuppressive agents during immunotherapy in order to get them through it and be successful. So the take-home message is that immunotherapy is awesome. It's using the body to fight cancer. And so we have the technology, but of course we must improve the treatments and we can personalize the treatment, which is the future of medicine. So that's the end of the talk. I want to thank Chad and the Norris Cotton Cancer Center for really having welcomed me. And I have a lab on the sixth floor in the Rubin uh, Center if you would like to stop by. And for any potential trainees or collaborators, feel free to um, contact me. Uh, and I'm happy to take any questions. Yes. I have a lot of questions, but I'll just... <laughs> So, um, is it correct that any monoclonal antibody could be the basis for a CAR-T therapy, or is that oversimplification? And the second is, so, so, so the question is, could you use them in combination? And the second question is, a lot of the cytokine release syndrome sounds like innate immunity type stuff that we see in periodic fever syndromes and Systemic JIA, and I was just wondering if anybody uses colchicine as a prophylaxis. Okay, so for the second question, colchicine has not been used as a prophylaxis, and that's a really interesting question. So I think we're all still trying to scratch our heads on how to prophylactically uh, treat CRS or prevent CRS, but right now it seems more let CRS start and then we're going to stop the reaction with steroids, but that's a really interesting thought. Um, and then for the first question, I don't know CAR T cell engineering that well, but I would suspect that, yes, like if you're using a monoclonal antibody, you can basically use that same target and engineer a CAR T cell against that same target. Uh, I don't see why not. Yes. So, I was intrigued by the idea of targeting T-cell malignancies with CAR T-cell. Mm -hmm. uh, so, for me, it seems like the problem is at least twofold. Um, so, you mentioned there's fewer targetable antigens. But also, the antigens that you're targeting are also going to be expressed by the CAR T-cell. Right. So, is there a concern for like, self-deletion? No, that's a really good point. And that's the thing about um, all the targets, though. It's more the dose of the antigen. Um, that allows it to selectively kill the leukemia or the tumor. Uh, so, but there's still a possibility that you're also going to like lymphodeplete because of the therapy. But we do that with systemic chemotherapy anyways. We basically lymphodeplete them, and so we just have to kind of manage them through the therapy in order to get rid of the tumor. But it's a really good thought. I guess my, my question is more to the point of are the CAR T cells also going to be killing themselves? Yeah, so that's lymphodepletion, right, exactly. Like, it's very potential that it will also deplete your normal T cells.
That is a great question, and I don't really know it. Um, my suspicion is that we are seeing it mostly here in the States and not so much in Europe. Um, the drug that they presented in that slide was a monoclonal antibody, so which has been around for many more years, more officially FDA approved or whatever their FDA is. But um, I'm sure it's going to start there eventually, but that could be a reason why those centers may be approving more immunotherapies because it's more of the other types of immunotherapies, not the million-dollar ones. Good questions. Thank you very much, Dr. Lavin.